And now let's come to God with our prayers of approach. Let us pray together. Living God, we come to you with our faltering words. Words that we may have drafted and redrafted to try to get them right. Words that we're hearing for the first time and are unsure where they will lead. We say that we are praying together and yet we entrust one person with the privilege and the task of choosing what to say. We have much to be grateful for. And in the silence of our hearts, we name those things we call to mind. We have much that troubles us. And in the silence, again, we name some of these things and offer them to you. We have internal dialogues that interrupt our concentration. So in the silence, we try to hush the busy thoughts. We have regrets and missed opportunities that need to be acknowledged and then released. Loving God, we call to mind that your word became one of us in Jesus Christ. That he experienced every emotion, every trial, every struggle that we do. That even now, he is praying for us and with us. That your spirit transforms our stumbling, halting words into prayers and into praise. So accept our words, our thoughts, our feelings, offered to you now in his name. Amen. The first reading is from the Wisdom of Solomon, between uh, chapter 7, verse 26 and the first verse of chapter 8. For wisdom is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation she passes into holy souls, and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the person who lives with wisdom. She is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. 
She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. And the second reading is from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> and the, this version is the New Living Translation, by the way. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a world, a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. It's an interesting week in which to be looking at issues around responsible words in an era of instant messaging. You cannot fail to have seen the news yesterday and the furore that has arisen around photographs of, the, uh, of Kate and William on their holidays. Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, isn't it? I always have to think which English city these things get linked up with because I'm not very good at it. We've also heard um, the results of the Hillsborough Inquiry and how words were changed and people wrongly understanding what had happened, people forced to say things that served political rather than truth agendas. We have also heard some bitterness, I have to say, um, some people responding in ways that are not particularly helpful to what has been said. And, of course, there is the Leaveson inquiry that goes on into issues around the press. So all that seems very live as we begin to look at this passage in James. I'm not going to do the connecting of that for you. You're clever people. You can do it yourself. Um, and that's really not my style of preaching. But it's good to keep those things in mind. This third chapter of James begins with a note of caution that has dogged me since I first studied James seriously when I was a 19-year-old student leading a Hall's Bible study in London as part of a Hall of Residence Bible study group. I had been a Sunday school teacher since I was 14. 
And so the assertion that few should become teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly cut me to the core. When I thought about it, it seemed fair enough. But actually, it was decidedly troubling. I've always understood that statement as related to some kind of judgment by God. As if somehow God had two mark sheets. One for the people who were teachers and one for the people who weren't. But actually that's quite problematical because we've already been reminded in James that God is impartial. God doesn't have different mark sheets for different people. And yet, I get the logic of that. There is something about privilege that also carries responsibility. It's really a great privilege to be allowed to stand up on a Sunday morning and say what I've been thinking about. But it's one heck of a responsibility. And I wonder if also we could read that as relating to human judgment, a different way of reading it. That actually people have an unfortunate habit of putting preachers and teachers and ministers and public figures on pedestals. And then feeling quite free to judge them harshly when they demonstrate their fallibility in some way. For those who read these things, there has been another fallen Christian man recently. Mark Stibb has stepped down from his role in a church in the south of England following inappropriate behaviour. Very easy to put people up on pedestals and then when they demonstrate they've got clay feet, when they get it wrong, to beat them up. And that's kind of part of the reason in all of that why I come out every Sunday with a sheet of typed paper. Because I know that the risk of me saying something unhelpful goes up phenomenally when I ad lib. If I stick with the words that I've read, written, edited, changed, tweaked, prayed over, struggled with, whatever, it's more likely that it will be careful and appropriate. Hopefully, without becoming totally boring, too politically correct to make any sense. Hopefully it still has some sense of colour, some sense of enthusiasm for a topic, some sense of, yeah, actually God is speaking through it. It isn't some boring lecture. It's a responsibility that I do take seriously. James refers to teachers... And it's interesting that in the translation we heard, it said teachers in the church. Uh, That's what is known as an interpretive choice. Uh, The Greek says teachers, and that's fine. I, I think contextually, it probably was teachers in the church, religious teachers. But actually, that same advice surely applies to everyone and anyone who uses words, whether spoken or written, not just in their professional capacity, but in everyday life. In other words, in some senses, it applies to all of us because all of us use words. We can't opt out of the the tough talking of this letter because we don't, as one minister friend of mine described his job, talk for a living. 
We can't say it doesn't apply to me because I'm not a teacher or a lecturer or a journalist or a writer. All human communication uses words, spoken or written or signed. And therefore, something of this message surely applies to all of us. I think that what James says with his very powerful metaphors is very plain and obvious. And I'm not going to spend the remainder of my time this morning ploughing through the forest fire and the water and the bridle. I think they're quite easy to understand and you're very intelligent people. But actually, in our age of instant messaging and high-tech communication, maybe we need to come back to the message of what James is saying. Some of us use the internet all the time. Some of us don't. Some of us use mobile phones. Some of us use blogs. Some of us use Facebook. Some of us use Twitter. And some people haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. There is a risk that we can feel excluded because we don't use these high-tech methods of communication. But I think we all use telephones sometimes. And I'm fairly sure we all write, even if it's just a note that you leave on the table, for somebody else to say, your dinner's in the dog, I've gone to the shops, or whatever it might be. In the time of James and the other biblical writers, there were only two forms of verbal communication, spoken and written. I know that's kind of telling you to suck eggs, but that's my starting point. Short messages could usually be relayed by a person who was required to memorise them and then travel some distance to deliver them. Some of us may remember doing that as children, actually. I can certainly remember being sent to Mrs. So-and-so to tell her such and such. Slaves or soldiers were entrusted with important information with all the potential to misremember or distort the message they had been given. I'm sure anybody over about 30 and of British origin knows the apocryphal story of the message that came back from the front line of the battle saying, send three and fourpence, we're going to a dance. It wasn't some clever coded message. It was a misremembered and distorted version of send reinforcements, we're going to advance. The risk of the kind of Chinese whispers effect is very real when words are only passed on verbally. This is without anybody trying to distort it. It's just people mishearing or misremembering. Or, you know, I can remember going to Mrs. So-and-so's house, playing that message over and over in my head. And sometimes when I locked the door, my mind went blank. It can happen. All that time ago, long messages were sent as letters. And very often, they were written down by a scribe. So the person who was sending the letter effectively dictated it. Somebody else wrote it down. So there was a risk of error creeping in then. And if you were going to send it to several people, as would have been the case with many of the biblical letters, then you had to copy it out several times. I was going to say there was no such thing as carbon paper in those days, but that kind of gives my age away because there are people here who haven't got a clue what carbon paper is. There was no duplicating. 
There was no photocopying. You literally had to write it out as many times as you needed. I roll on to the 15th century, and of course the invention of printing radically impacted the production of books and impacted human communication because now were the beginnings of mass production of identical copies relatively quickly. And so it was around this time that the newspaper industry emerged. And then, of course, telegrams and telephones and television in the late 19th and 20th centuries. I know television was 20th, but as a set of three telly things, they began in the end of the 19th century. meant that information could be not only transmitted quickly, but very soon after events occurred. There was a time when if your friend went on holiday or your family member moved to another country, you wouldn't hear anything for months on end until a letter finally reached you. Now we can communicate in seconds with Skype, with phones, with emails, whatever it is. And so we have this very different culture when we can communicate very, very rapidly. There is currently a fairly lively debate in some circles about the rights and wrongs of people texting or tweeting in church services. Just for the record, I'm a guinea, but there are churches where this is happening. Um, I don't think it's helpful, I think it's distracting, but some people think differently. But definitely, the way we communicate has become much quicker because we have this technology that advances so very, very fast. And this week, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how communication has changed in my lifetime and how that's impacted the way I use words and the traps and consequences that can arise from that. So just one example from my own experience. When I started in industry in the mid-1980s, which I realise is before some people were born, but there we go, most important communication was still done by letter. I would write out my draft letter by hand with a pencil. We weren't allowed pens, we had to have pencils. I would hand it to my supervisor, who would check it over and make a few alterations and then I would copy it out again. It would then be handed to a typist or a secretary who typed it on a strange thing called a typewriter. I think they've pretty much gone now. A day or so later, a draft would come back. Any corrections had to be marked up in blue pencil, light blue pencil, because that was the one colour that wouldn't show up when they photocopied the final letter. So if there was a spelling mistake or a small typo, you'd mark it up in blue, hand it back, they'd get the tipex or snowpake out, paint over it, feed it back into the typewriter, and redo it. But woe beside you if you wanted to make a big change. You would be in... Thank you, Joyce, that's absolutely it. You would be in big trouble if you wanted an extra sentence put in, because that meant redoing the whole thing. So another day would go past before the corrections were done and then you'd get it back to sign and finally it would be posted. So at least three days to prepare a letter which meant that the words were carefully crafted and checked several times and an urgent response 
to a customer inquiry typically was understood to mean within the next seven days. By the time I left industry in 1999, people were dashing off emails without a second thought, sometimes without reading over what they'd written, and sometimes with unfortunate consequences. And I know that's a trap that I can fall into. I always do read back my emails before I send them. But I, it's not always that easy to spot your own errors, at least straight away. We send things off very quickly, or some of us do anyway. And this is where I think James' teaching about the challenge of using words responsibly is so important. Because we can send written communications so quickly. I think also we need to remind ourselves that written communication loses something that spoken communication has. We lose the tone of voice. We lose the facial expression. Those little things that can give us a hint when something's ambiguous of what it actually is, which way it's actually going. We just have prose, maybe interspersed with a bit of that smiley face or some other emoticon, 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 I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Sometimes it's very much abbreviated, sometimes it's in tuxtuk, and sometimes it's ambiguous. And of course, once the words have gone, you can't take them back. I had a recall email recently. That completely confused me. I'd read the first email and now I had a second email to tell me to ignore the first one. It's too late. I'd read it. I knew what it said. Perhaps it's not just our tongues but also our fingers we need to guard. What damage can be and sometimes is caused by a careless email or an unfortunate text message without any deliberate intent. The forest fire of rumour, scandal, misrepresentation and woundedness can spread rapidly and damages everyone in its path. I don't think there's anything I can say that you don't already know about the practical means of minimising the risks of causing damage to each other, whether using spoken word or email or text. You know, like me, I'm sure, that sometimes when you're highly in an emotional state, you sit down and compose a letter or an email that you then throw away. You get that out of your system before you then write the measured, thoughtful, loving response. That seems an okay thing to do because sometimes we do get stressed or angry or upset. I'm sure you have saved drafts of messages or letters to look at overnight. It's always a thing I try to avoid is sending late night emails because I know that when I'm tired, I could so easily say something that's just not helpful. I guess too, in spoken communication, sometimes all of us have bitten our tongue and walked away. It's all obvious, of course it is. But we all are at risk sometimes of causing damage with our words, spoken or written. I just want to say, is it worth thinking at some point, what are your traps? You might be brilliant at 10 o'clock at night when I'm rubbish. You might be more at risk at 7 o'clock in the morning when my brain's working reasonably well. 
You might be a really good self-editor, or you might be somebody who tends not to read things back, or whatever it is. But just be aware of those things and try to think of the implications. Now, sometimes it does go wrong. Sometimes I do lose my temper and I do growl at people. Sometimes I write things that can and are read in a way I don't intend. Because just like everybody else, I've got clay feet. James points this out to us. He says, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody gets it wrong sometimes. That's part of being human. There is that saying, which is not in the Bible, but somehow I wish it was. The person who never made a mistake never made anything. We shouldn't be so uptight, risking getting it wrong, that we never do anything. We shouldn't, and this is one of my failings, keep beating ourselves up about mistakes we do make. But we should be alert to the consequences of what we write or say. And then when we foul up, because we all will sometimes, to use that one little word that actually is quite hard to say sorry. But also, we need to be willing to forgive. We have no right to expect to be forgiven by others if we don't forgive them. And so I end up back where I started, very conscious of the incredible responsibility of the privilege of preaching. Reminded that all the correspondence I use has to be inspired by that attitude of gratitude to which we referred a couple of weeks ago that comes from recognising that all that God in Christ has done for me that prompts me to do my best to show impartial generosity to the people who communicate with me. Even, or maybe especially, on those days when I find what they have to say difficult or emotive. This has been a lot of words, and you've listened very patiently. And perhaps I haven't said anything that's new or interesting or helpful. But I do hope that somehow we will all be reminded of the responsibilities we have in our communication, that it should be to build up rather than to destroy. And that when we do get it wrong, we learn from that and move forwards. Amen. Let us pray. Creator Lord, humbly we approach you with our prayers for others and for ourselves. We speak to you in a period when we are still reeling from the hypocrisy of public officials in national government, local government, and the police, who for years have sought to hide their errors and faults in the Hillsborough Stadium tragedy. The people of Liverpool, the relatives of the dead and maimed, deserve better. These public figures use their tongues unwisely to save themselves from blame. 
Now we have a legacy of distrust over the words of those, the police in particular, whom it is essential we do trust to a high degree. The damage done will take a long time to repair. There is, too, a minor film about Islam which has caused havoc around the world, causing death and distrust, wiping out the efforts of many brave and caring people who tried to heal the divisions between the Muslim and Christian worlds. We do not know whether this film was meant to incite violence or whether the makers and promoters were merely misguided. But, as in the Hillsborough business, we understand it illustrates the necessity to recognise the consequences of unwise speech and actions. We pray for all the people affected by these examples of verbal folly and unthinking action. Heal their wounds, we pray. Calm their unquiet souls. Soften their speech that they do not answer folly for folly, evil for evil. Lord, those matters spoken of were on the world stage. Allow us to address you now on matters closer to home. In our private lives, we pray, curb the too-quick response which can deeply hurt others. Let us not criticise or judge the actions of others lightly. It said sticks and stones can break our bones, but indeed words to the vulnerable, be they poor or sad or ethnically different or ill, can act like lethal weapons. We pray that you remind us when we speak that our tongues are yours and think of how you would respond. We pray for the troubled, the grieving and the sick in our congregation who often do not use their tongues to tell us of these things. Lord, help them to speak to someone, to share their worry and let that person hear them and answer them in your spirit. Lord, we pray for our young people starting out in life, for the very young, for those started out on the great adventure of university. Let them learn from the mistakes of others that their tongues are marvellous instruments and help them to use them wisely. Lastly, Lord, we thank you for the joy we have known in these last few months, sharing in the passion of our young athletes, the able and the disabled alike. They have shown hard work, dedication, endurance, and above all, loving spirits to each other. Glorying in their own achievements, but also glorying in the achievements of each other. A shining example to us all. We pray for their futures. Let it be as clear-sighted as their present. Lord of creation, 
we pray for your spirit of responsibility in all we say or do. Amen.